Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So our oldest started kindergarten this year, which means the whole summer he was talking about how excited he was to go to kindergarten. Now we tried to set up realistic expectations like, listen buddy, this is different than three days, half day preschool. These are long days, there's more rules, right? It's gonna be different. And he's like, yeah, whatever, it'll be fine. And so he was literally skipping as we were going along walking on the first day of school. And the first few days were fine, right? He was excited, still tired, but excited. And then a few days in, we wake up in the morning and he goes, I'm not going to school today. <laughs> We're like, sorry, but you gotta go. Like, it's the law and stuff. No, I'm not going to school today. Like, guess what? For the next 12 years at least, you have to do this. Like, every day, sorry, dude. It was not like, he wasn't signing up for that exactly. So I asked someone the day after that morning, when does that whole fight stop in the morning? And she said, she said, when my daughter graduated, it stopped. So there's some hope a few decades from now, right? And I get it, right? We all get it. You don't always like going to school, and especially that transition from preschool. Preschool is like 80% play, 20% sit down and do something. In kindergarten, it's the other way around. It's not always fun and exciting. Now, to be fair, though, our experience so far has been pretty positive, right? He comes home at the end of the day, and yeah, it was a good day, I had fun, but that doesn't mean he would choose to go back the next day if he had the option not to. School is a lot of work, and life is full of transitions like that. It's not just with school, is it? No, there are transitions like that with work and different jobs, with moving and relationships. Transitions like that when you retire, transitions that come with aging, and all of these transitions, even if you're really looking forward to them, there are parts of each stage of life that are really hard. And so, yes, I believe that life is good, but it's not always easy. So we wanted to spend a few weeks in this time of transition for many of us in fall to look at some times in the Bible where God helps guide people going through times of transition. And so the transition today that we're looking at is the people of Israel going back into this promised land. Now, over and over again, as they're told about this land they're going into, they're told it's a good land, it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. But what exactly does that mean? So. If we don't think about that phrase too much, if you, oh, milk, milk and honey, we might assume that that's just talking about paradise. Ah, as much milk and honey as you could want, for whatever reason. Like, I'm not sure why they really like their sweet milk, but they must, and so, okay, that's your version of paradise. But actually, milk and honey means something a whole lot deeper than that. And there's a couple of problems with thinking that milk and honey means paradise. I mean, first of all, it's pretty obvious. If the ancient Israelites could choose one product, one crop to have in abundance, it would not be milk and honey. Their essential crops, the ones that mattered, they're grapes, grains, and olives. 
If you had, a, in this part of the world, a really great, luxurious land, it would be a land flowing with wine and oil and bread. That's what you actually wanted, not just a ton of milk and honey. So the other problem with thinking that milk and honey means paradise is that when you look at the reality of the actual land of the Bible, it is not an easy land to live in. I mean, it's this land in the Middle East that's always between the big empires in the region. It's not where everyone wants to live because it's not a very safe place. It's not especially fertile or rich in resources that you need. It's a hard land to make your home. And so God calls them into this land that is good, but it's not easy. So to get a sense of this, we're going to look at this passage from Deuteronomy today. Now, if you remember the setting of Deuteronomy, it's set as this long sermon, and so Moses is talking to the people of Israel right as they're done with their wilderness time. They're about to finally enter the land. And so this is Deuteronomy chapter 11. Keep then the entire commandment that I am commanding you today so that you may have strength to go in and occupy the land that you are crossing over to occupy and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God, that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the interesting part. Before Deuteronomy describes what that land is, the author says what it isn't. Here's what they say. For the land that you are about to enter to occupy is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sow your seed and irrigate by foot. Now, in Hebrew, this literally says, where you sow your seed and you water with your foot like you would a vegetable garden. And so I tried it this week. I tried watering with my foot, and it's good for, like, working on balance, you know? But it's not very practical. It doesn't help you actually water your garden more effectively. But I did some research into this phrase, and the real meaning in Egypt of watering your garden with your foot is fascinating. Now, the land of Egypt was a very desirable land in that region because of the Nile River. Now, we know the Nile River, it's huge, right? Longest river in the world, but it's also very wide, which in the ancient world, it meant it's this source of always flowing, always clean, usable water for them. And this river floods every year without fail. Now, why that's important, it really matters, is because when the river floods, it deposits all of these minerals on the banks. And so the banks of the Nile are naturally fertilized every year. It's a great place for growing crops. And because of this annual flood and how flat the land is around this river, the Egyptians were able, in a desert, to dig all these canals and trenches where all the water would flow from the river to water your crops. So this is a picture of an Egyptian crop field today using the same method. And you can see the pipes there, but you can imagine how this method would work without them. And if you wanted to water your crops and you had these channels set up, you could do it without any tools. So here's the cool part. Just imagine this. You have that channel of water. It's perpendicular to all your rows of crops. You just walk up to one of the rows and smooth out that mound of mud by the trench with your foot. And then the water could flow down that row. And when you're done, you just build that mound back up with your foot again, and then you walk to the next row and do the same thing. They could literally, in Egypt, water their crops just by using their 
feet. It was incredible. What an incredible luxury in any part of the world, but especially in a dry desert land like Egypt. So think of the stories from the book of Genesis. There are several times where there is a drought and there's a famine, and you know what everyone in the chosen land has to do? They have to go down to the land of Egypt to get some food because Egypt is a great land. That's a land that could continue to provide for you even in times of drought. So now, picture hearing this message from Deuteronomy. You're gathered in this crowd, you're about to enter this promised land, and you're told, this is a good land for you, and it is not like the land of Egypt, where watering your crops was as easy as moving some mud with your feet. It is not like that at all. I mean, could you imagine the collective groan? <sighs> really? I mean, we weren't a big fans of the slave drivers in Egypt, but if you take them away, we would love a land like that. <laughs> The land of Egypt, that's a place where you can be comfortable and wealthy, where you can build some power. Who doesn't want that? Of course, when you think about their experience in Egypt, it's also the kind of place that breeds oppression and slavery. Those good, rich conditions are also the kind of place that breeds abuse of that wealth and power. And so God tells them, no, that's not the kind of future I have in mind for you. Here's what the chosen land will be like. But the land that you are crossing over to occupy is a land of hills and valleys watered by rain from the sky. Now you can see this is a topographical map, right? You can see that it is just the, all these small mountain ranges, the hills and valleys. And if you just read this out of context, you'd think it's kind of weird. Isn't every place watered by rain from the skies? But the point is that the only place you're going to get your water for your crops is from the rain from the sky, not from a river like you got in Egypt. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you might be asking a question here. They had a river, right? They had the River Jordan. What about that? Well, the River Jordan is a very small river, and it also is located in the middle of that valley, and so it goes from the Sea of Galilee up in the north to the Dead Sea down in the south. And since water doesn't run uphill, there's no way for them to get that water from the river over the hills to where the people actually were. And so, yeah, they had a little river, but it wasn't useful. It didn't help them. They only got their water from the rain from the sky. This kind of land is a place where you have to trust in the rain during the rainy seasons that God will provide enough water for you, for your crops and your cisterns during the year. It's a hard land to live on, but there is enough for them. And that leads us to the milk and honey. So to understand this, we have to ask, well, where does milk come from? Cows is what most of us would say. But there weren't too many cows in this area. Cows take a whole lot of resources to raise. The shepherds, they had sheep and goats. So they had, from those sheep and goats, they could get milk. But it wasn't the main product they wanted, right? The, the main product that they raised their herds for was for their wool and for their hair. And occasionally their meat, but mostly their wool and their hair. Milk is just a byproduct that you also get 
as a shepherd. So think about life as a shepherd in the Middle East. It's not like you're wandering these endless green fields of New Zealand or of England, something like that. No, this is the desert. And so there are two types of land here. There's the type where there is enough water to grow some crops, and then there are the barren lands where only some grasses will grow. That is where the shepherds had to spend most of their time because you didn't want the livestock eating all your crops before harvest. So most of the time, the shepherds were wandering in this barren land, always constantly on the move to find enough water, to find these little patches of grass for their animals to eat. And what's the promise to the shepherds? Not that they'll have infinite wool or infinite meat, the things that they might want. No, you will always at least have some milk. At least some of your animals will survive, so the milk will keep flowing in these barren lands. A little bit different picture of that flowing milk, isn't it? So if the milk is referring to the shepherd life, the honey is referring to the farmers. Now farmers, of course, they needed bees to pollinate some of their crops, and there is some evidence of people intentionally cultivating honey in this time. But there's not very much, it's very scattered. And so some scholars argue that the honey they're referring to here is probably actually this syrup that they made from dates. Because the date palm trees, those were really prevalent in this area, and there are records of exporting those dates. Now picture a palm tree, that's what these date trees are. They're pretty impressive, because they're able to grow in this dry land of the desert, a lot bigger than most desert trees, live a lot longer, and still bear fruit even through years of drought. But picture that fruit, a date. It's not like a peach, right, where the juice runs down your arm. No, it's, it's like this little dry fruit. And if you want to get some liquid out of it, you can smash it and press it between some baskets, and then what comes out is this thick, sweet syrup that they would call honey. So either way, it's the bee honey or the, the date honey, that promise for a land of honey is not that their main crops were going to do well every year. Right? That would be a promise for their grapes and their grains and their olives. No, it's not that. A land that always has honey is a promise that even in those dry years where the rest of your crops are not doing well, God will at least provide you with enough for some honey. At least there will still be bees, or at least there will still be some hardy dates around. So the milk and the honey, they refer to the lifestyle in this land of a shepherd and a farmer. And what can we learn from those two lifestyles? Well, the shepherd lives in the barren lands, right? And it's a tough life. But when God shows up in those barren lands, you can't deny it. It's impossible to miss because you know that you couldn't have made it on your own. Sometimes it's easier to trust in God's provision in those barren times when you know you really need it and you couldn't have done it yourself. And then the farmer, the farmer's life is still hard, but it's a lot easier than the shepherd. It's more stable. A farmer at least can put down some roots and live in the same land, but that also means that for the farmer, it's easier to trick themselves into thinking they're self-sufficient. It's easier for the farmer to think that I've got it good, that I'm doing this 
on my own and forget that they need God just like the shepherd does. And isn't it interesting what God says? The land for you, a good land, is a land of both. It is of milk and honey. It is for the shepherd and the farmer. So I've done some reading and listening to Dr. Cindy Parker, who does a lot of biblical geography. So she looks at the physical land of the Bible. And I love how she interprets this idea of milk and honey. Here's what she says about it. The concept of the land of milk and honey is so much richer than we often give it credit for. It has nothing to do with paradise. It has everything to do with how to live with God in the place you've been given, whatever place that is. So how do we live with God in the places that we've been given? I mean, there are times for us where we're kind of like the shepherd. There are times when it feels like we barely have enough energy or resources to keep going, and yet God is still with us in those barren times, giving us just enough to make it. And then there are those seasons where we're more like the farmer, where things are fertile, opportunities are going our way, things are stable, and God is still with us in those good times, reminding us that it's still God providing for us. We can't do this on our own. So I want to end back with what I started, the life of kids who don't want to go to school but have to anyway. When I was growing up and I had to do something I didn't want to do, I always would complain about it, right? And my mom would respond by singing a Rolling Stones song at me. And it drove me crazy. It never made things better, but she did it. I would complain, and she would say, well, you can't always get what you want. It never helped. Just made me angry. So, of course, as a parent, I do the same thing now. <laughs> because I have discovered that as a parent, sometimes you do things not because it's the best way to parent, but because you need to amuse yourself. And so I do the same thing with my kids, but... I try to start by acknowledging their feelings, right? Yeah, that's the thing to do. Um, yes, it's normal for you to not want to do this. That's great. But you can't always get what you want. Now, my son, being the wonderful person he is, the first time I tried this on him, he came back with this great response. He said, Dad, no, it doesn't go like that. It goes like this. Kids always get what they want. Sing with me. Kids always get what they want. It's one of those moments you're like, well done. You win this round, except not really because we're still going to school. Now put on your shoes. So it may not be the best parenting method, but I love the message of that song. Because it doesn't end there, right? You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, you'll find you get what you need. And that's it, isn't it? I mean, that's the real promise of this milk and honey. It's not just about the land of the Bible. It's a promise for our lives. You can't always get what you want. Life doesn't work that way. But if you try it, you'll see that God does give you what you need. God provides enough for us. At one point, Jesus talks with this crowd and says, why are you all worrying about your daily needs? Look at the birds. 
Look at the birds. They don't sow or reap or gather, and yet God still takes care of them. Consider the lilies of the field. They're more beautiful than Solomon's kingdom in all its glory. And God cares for them. How much more will God care for you, God's children? So as we try to figure out all of the transitions we have to go through in life, facing the good and the hard things ahead of us, maybe that's where we should start. Consider the lilies. Remember that God takes care of them. God will take care of us no matter what comes our way. God does promise to give a good life. It's just not always easy.